Today we are going to continue our study of the book of Matthew and finish off chapter 15. Today we're going to focus in on, on ministry that Jesus performed uh, for Gentiles. And uh, each of the situations in today's text happen in Gentile regions, and they happen to at least a majority of the people uh, being uh, Gentiles as well. Now, today's message is, is simply entitled, Ministry to the Gentiles. And so we're going to pick up our account in Matthew chapter 15 at verse 21. And so if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew. And uh, would you mind standing as we read uh, the opening verses of our portion this morning? We're going we're gonna to read verses 21 through 28 uh, just to get us started. And uh, then we'll continue through and, and complete the chapter uh, throughout our time this morning. And so Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse uh, 21, it states this. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning, Lord, and uh, just the blessing that it is to gather and to spend time in your word, to glean from your word, to learn from it, Lord, to uh, uh, just come and, and be refreshed uh, spiritually, uh, hopefully even physically, Lord. Uh, we do pray for those who are sick in body, asking that you would just have your hand upon them, Lord, bring healing and restoration to their life. Lord, for those of us who maybe aren't dealing with physical ailments, but just spiritual needs, Lord, I pray that you would meet every need this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us and reveal to us the wonders of your truth and that we would be able to apply them to our lives. We ask that you'd lead and guide our time. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children agreed by saying, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I, I'm fearful to cough. If I cough and it comes out really loud, I'm really sorry. Um, but um, hopefully we'll make it through with no problems. Verse 21 uh, of chapter 15 opens up, and Jesus and his disciples are heading to the northwest region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are both Gentile cities uh, that were part of a region known as Phoenicia. Okay. Uh, it was situated along the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. If you're from the Sea of Galilee, where they were coming from, it would be to the northwest of them. And I find it interesting that, if you recall, last time we gathered together, that Jesus just spoke about... Thank you, Travis. Awesome. I find it interesting that... After just addressing the issue of ceremonially washing hands from uncleanness, that Jesus leads his disciples into a land that was filled with unclean people. In fact, throughout the rest of this chapter, as I mentioned, all the ministry that Jesus will be doing will be to, at the very least, a mixed group of Gentiles and Jews, if not a majority of Gentiles people that were unclean according to Jewish customs and, and ceremonially, ceremonial beliefs. And perhaps Jesus saw an opportunity to continue on the idea of uncleanness and where it comes from 
by leading his disciples to a people that were believed to be unclean. Just as he showed how the food we take in doesn't make us unclean or defile us. Remember last time when we got together, he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a man. That's what defiles a man. And here we're going to see, I believe he wants to show to the disciples and believe, begin to show them that being born in one land or another does not make you uncleaned or defiled either, just as their thoughts on unclean food defiling them was ridiculous, this thought as well. And he's going to minister to a Gentile uh, people in this uh, final portion of chapter 15. So let's see what Jesus does. Verse 22, it says, uh, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. We are introduced here to a woman from the land of Canaan. Okay? The land of Canaan was a, a country named after one of the sons of Ham, way, way back in the book of Genesis. Okay? And it was the first named such, uh, the land was first named such by the Phoenicians. Okay? Uh, the eldest son of Canaan was named Zidon, okay? and was believed to be the father of the Sidonians and the Phoenicians. Mark's Gospel informs us that this woman was uh, born a Syrophoenician. A Syrophoenician woman. A Syrophoenician combines the area of Phoenicia and the larger uh, Roman province of Syria. And so it's this idea that the Roman province of Syria within the land of the Phoenicia. And Canaan is actually the uh, the Old Testament reference to that land, uh, uh, it really wasn't called that anymore. Uh, but Matthew references that. I think it probably, knowing that he's writing to Jewish audience, familiar with the Old Testament text, he introduces this woman as a lady from Canaan, where Mark says more accurately that she was Syrophoenician uh, in the common uh, day language Mark's used. Excuse me, Mark used. This woman was a Gentile. Okay, the word Gentile is used to denote anyone that was non-Jewish. Okay, if you're not Jewish, then you're Gentile. Okay, it's it's like uh, you know, really simple. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. Okay, I I don't know for sure, but I think most of us we would say we're Gentile. Okay, uh, uh, Gentile nation. Okay. And although the word itself is merely a distinction of people that were not of Jewish background, by the time of the New Testament era, it had become a word of scorn and a word of disgust amongst the Israelites. Jews did not have many interactions with Gentiles. And if they did, they had to uh, ceremonially cleanse themselves because they were seen as unclean. And so the word Gentile... It was, uh, although the main use of it just means you're not Jewish, it kind of had a derogatory, insulting type of connotation to it amongst Jewish people. Uh, it was seen as people that were dirty, people that were unclean. And based of, most of that was based upon most of the people, they didn't worship the, uh, the God of, Je- of Israel, and so they were believed to be pagans, uh, idolaters, and unclean, and so it, they just became associated with uncleanness, this word Gentile. Okay? We read of why this woman came to Jesus as well. It tells us that her daughter was severely demon-possessed. And this woman cried out to Jesus and said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. The phrase, son of David, was a messianic term. Okay? And would have been strange to hear coming from the lips of a Gentile woman. Okay? The Jews believed that the long-awaited Messiah would come from the line of David. And so the phrase, son of David, became synonymous with the Messiah. And it would have been strange for a Gentile to refer to Jesus as the son of David. Okay? Because they don't have any connection to the Jewish culture or the Jewish beliefs. Now, I was trying to think of a good analogy, and I thought the Rick of Frentes would get it. But I, I was thinking, you know, if I went to Hawaii and I l- tried to speak pidgin, okay, and, and people looked at me and thought I was crazy because I don't have any connection. You know, it would be like, I might be able to speak it and someone might be able to teach me how to pronounce things, but if I don't have a connection there, then, 
It would be weird to hear me speak pidgin okay, in Hawaii. Even if I said it properly and correctly, it would still be weird because I don't have that connection. I don't have that cultural uh, connection. So this idea of this woman using um, son of David uh, is weird because she doesn't have that cultural connection to Israel uh, that is waiting for their Messiah. Okay? I can't help but wonder where this woman came upon this phrase and why she employed it in her address to Jesus. This is not the first time in our study through the book of Matthew that this wording has been used to seek healing from Jesus. Previously in Matthew chapter 9, two blind men called out to Jesus saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus healed these two blind men. And gave them strict warning not to tell anyone, but when they departed, they spread the news throughout the whole entire land, it tells us. Okay? Um, Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 31 tell us about that. And, and perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps this woman heard of this account. Perhaps she's thinking that if she addresses Jesus in the same manner, that if she comes with the right phrase, Jesus, uh, son of David, you know, uh, have mercy on me, that she'll win Jesus' favor, that he would be forced to grant her request and heal her daughter. Well, how did Jesus respond? It's interesting. Jesus responds, verse 23, it says, But he answered her not a word. He, He answered her not a word. It seems as if Jesus wouldn't even acknowledge this woman. Now, at first, we may read this, and we may think, Jesus is being kind of cold here. He's being a little cruel uh, to this woman. Indeed, even some of the words he eventually will share can be seen as harsh, as we've already read this morning's portion. And you would think that Jesus, you know, of all the people that he would respond to, a mother crying helplessly over her daughter, and uh, asking and begging for a healing, that he would answer that type of request. But he doesn't. He doesn't do it immediately, at at least. And and let me suggest to you that Jesus, Jesus already knows what he's going to do. He already knows he's going to heal this woman's daughter. And so what plays out before us is not a denial of the woman, but a development of this woman. He's going to develop within her a personal faith that is her own. And so let's continue. Verse 23, the latter part there, it says, And the disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. The disciples, they urged Jesus to to send her away. Evidently, this woman was very persistent. She was not going to give up until Jesus responded to her. Mark's gospel tells us that she kept on asking, indicating that she pleaded over and over and over again to Jesus, just uh, bugging him and and not letting go, not giving in, waiting for Jesus to respond to her. And and knowing the disciples, I'm sure, because we've seen them do this before, I'm sure they tried to shoo her away. And they probably asked her to, hey, quit bugging him. Let us alone. Leave us be. But she would not give up. You know, this woman, as I was reading it, it reminded me of the account in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob wrestles with the Lord. If you're familiar with the account, you'll recall that that Jacob was alone one night when a man approached Jacob and wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And we're told that the man wanted Jacob to let him go. He had touched Jacob in the hip socket, knocked it out of place, knocked it out of joint, uh, and Jacob would not let him go. Jacob just would not let him go. Jacob told the man who he figured was the Lord, he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Genesis chapter 32, verse 26. Jacob knew who this person was, and he was not going to let him go without getting a blessing from him. And this is the type of persistence that I see in this Phoenician woman. She's not going to give up until she's heard and the Lord answers her prayer. 
Jesus responded to the disciples in verse 24, and he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Although this response was given to the disciples, I'm sure it was said with every intention of the woman hearing it as well. Jesus told the disciples that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel making it seem like it wasn't part of his mission to answer the request of, the Gent- of Gentiles like the woman before them. As I first read this, I thought, that's weird. He came to save the whole world. Why is he fibbing? You know, Jesus doesn't fib. You know, what is he saying here? How does, how does, what's, what's going on here? And as I looked at it, I realized, oh, I understand. And I'll try to explain it to you. <laughs> we do know that Jesus' primary mission was to come as the Messiah to God's chosen people, the holy nation of Israel. We see he had this sense of priority, even in sending out the twelve when he told the disciples to not go into the way of the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Even Romans chapter 1 verse 16 declares that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You see, Jesus' mission was to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament and to fulfill the law. This was a mission that was for the house of Israel. And so we have to realize that. His mission was for the house of Israel. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. However, the outcome, you see, the end result of his completed mission was that not only the Jews, but the entire world was presented with a new covenant of grace. People of all nations could be made to have a right standing with God through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so we realize that, yes, this is a true statement. He was sent to the house of Israel. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The benefit, the blessing of his completed mission, though, is for the entire world. Jesus' words must have been painful to hear for the woman who knew that she was not of the house of Israel. She was a Gentile. She was not part of the lost sheep. She was not part of his mission or his plan. And that had to have hurt to hear that from the Lord. And I believe this may have been the desire of Jesus. To show to her that she wasn't part of the house of Israel. He did this, I believe, to strip her of any thoughts that she may have that she can come on Jewish terms and be heard by Jesus. She wasn't Jewish. She wasn't of the house of Israel. She was a Gentile. And I believe Jesus was wanting to develop in her a faith that wasn't something borrowed from the Hebrews, like the phrase that she used, but it was something that could be her own. Let's continue. Verse 25, Then she came and worshipped Him, saying, Lord, Help me. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere. The woman, she ditches the borrowed phrases and simply comes and worships Jesus and simply declared, Lord, help me. What a perfect prayer. They're passing. There we go. All right. What a perfect prayer, really. One that can be used in pretty much any situation. Right? Lord, help me. My wife and kids are homesick. Lord, help me. I want to be used by you in my workplace. Lord, help me. I've made a mess of things and I need you. We sing that song today. You know, if I ever needed you, I need you now. You know, and we can say, Lord, help me. I need you now. <laughs> Lord, help me. You know, think of that. Lord, help me. Fill in the blank. Okay? Take a moment right now and, and think. Well, how would I say that prayer right now? Lord, help me what? Okay. 
a beautiful prayer, a simple prayer, one that can be used for pretty much any occasion and any situation you find yourself in. This woman came with a very heartfelt and very simple prayer. Lord, help me. And the woman, she worshipped Jesus. You know, the Greek word for worshipped is proskuneo. Okay? It's a beautiful word uh, that really doesn't have a direct English uh, translation. We say it means uh, to worship, and it does. Uh, it's uh, a means to kiss or adore. Literally, this is what it means. It means to kiss towards someone, to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage. You see, in the ancient Oriental, especially Persian, mode of salutation between persons of equal ranks was to kiss each other on the lips. I'm glad that that's not for me. Okay? When the difference of rank was slight, they'd kiss each other on the cheek. When one was much inferior, he would fall upon his knees, touch his forehead to the ground, and prostrate himself, throwing kisses at the same time toward their superior. And it is this latter mode of salutation that the Greek writers express by using this word proskuneo. This woman, she came to Jesus and she prostrated herself before Him as if throwing kisses towards a superior. A beautiful uh, word picture there, proskuneo, that presents to us this type of worship that this woman offered. It was intimate and sincere. Out went the borrowed phrases, and in came simple, heartfelt worship, which was personal and sincere. I think we can sometimes be like this lady. I think that we, we think that we need to come with maybe special words or phrases in order to get the Lord to answer our prayers. You know, my boys and I, I have to admit, I like it too. My boys, uh, we like to listen to Adventures in Odyssey when we're driving around in the car. Anybody do dri- Adventures in Odyssey? All right, a couple of you are here like, oh, okay. Okay, well, in Adventures in Odyssey, one of the episodes has a little boy in it by the name of Jimmy Barkley. Okay? And Jimmy Barkley wants a new bike. Okay? And Jimmy Barkley believes that if he prays for a bike, God will give it to him. And he tries a couple different ways to pray, thinking that if he can just get the right words up to the Lord, that the Lord would answer him and provide this new bike for him. And, you know, the, the show, it's, it's pretty comical as you listen to Jimmy try to use other people's types of prayers. He hears his grandfather speak, and his grandfather's kind of older traditionally, kind of used that King James version. So he thinks, yeah, if I just... Thou heavenly Father, I beseecheth thee, you know, and we come up with these fancy words and we think, oh, if we come with fancy phraseology and, and words, God will hear our prayers, you know, or, or sometimes even our own position in prayer. He even tries, you know, I try, he, it's funny, he says he tries praying in the closet, he fell asleep in the closet, but, uh, you know, we pray in the closet or we pray on our knees, we pray with our hands lifted up and we think, if we just get the right connection, We'll get our answers. And, and really, that's not what the Lord's looking for. Okay? We can be like that sometimes. We think God's wanting to hear some special words from us when really He's wanting just to hear from us. Just how we are. To be real with Him and, say, and to be genuine with Him and say, Lord, help me. This is where I'm at. And I need you. John Corson, a favorite commentator, Bible teacher of mine, he had this to say about the Canaanite woman. I quote, She had the formula, but she failed miserably until she threw her formula aside and came in brokenness and openness to worship Jesus. Worship works where formulas fail. He continued, Those of you who feel like the Lord is answering you not a word, try worshiping Jesus. Put away your royal robes and futile, futile formulas and say, Lord, help me express my heart to you today. Jesus didn't want this woman to think that it was by some special formula or some special title that she used that made Jesus answer her prayer. He wanted her to come 
and to worship and make things personal and make things intimate. Proskeneo, that intimate kiss. Okay? And, and that's what she begins here in verse 25. But Jesus still wanted to develop more in her. So let's read verse 26. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Jesus is speaking allegorically to her when he says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He once again is speaking of the purpose of his ministry. The children represent the household of Israel. Okay? And the little dogs represent the Gentiles. His mission is to provide for the house of Israel first, not the Gentiles. And it's important to note the terminology Jesus uses when addressing this woman. Okay? Because in that day, being called a dog was a very derogatory and insulting thing. Okay? In the East, dogs were not usually pets. Okay? Like we have a lot of pets for dogs, or as have dogs for pets. Excuse me. Okay? They were not usually pets. They were without masters, wandering at large in the streets and fields and feeding upon whatever they could find. They were looked upon as unclean. And for this reason, many of the Jews would often refer to Gentiles as dogs because they were unclean. Okay? Jesus is not calling this woman that type of dog. Okay? In the New Testament, there are two different words that are used and translated as dog. Okay? One word speaks of the type of scavenger dog that I just mentioned. That dog that has no master and roams around and is just dirty and kind of think of a, you know, a stray dog type of dog. Okay? And the other word speaks of the less common house dogs that were kept as domestic pets. It was not common, but there were some that would be kept as domestic pets. And this is the word that Jesus uses when addressing this woman. He speaks of, of little household dogs. It's like, like puppies, if you will. And so it's, it's not a derogatory insult. It, it, it was, you know, definitely not the same as the children, but it wasn't an insulting manner in which Jesus spoke to her. And I, as I read and studied that, I, I want to bring that out because it can seem really harsh you know, to think that he's calling her a dog or referencing to her as a dog. And so, uh, let's look at the woman's response to Jesus. Verse 27, it's a beautiful response, a very faithful one. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. The woman still didn't let go. And she persisted in her statement. We see that she took the same analogy that Jesus used and turned it in her favor. The woman, she didn't argue with Jesus or get mad at him for being referred to as a little dog. She didn't say, I'm a children, I'm a child too, you know, and I, I deserve every right as everybody else. And she didn't do that. She realized who she was. And, and at the same time, she realized that even just a little, just something insignificant as some crumbs, okay? something, something little from the master would be enough for her. When she said, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table, she identified with the little dogs and indicated that she knew her request for her daughter's healing it was like crumbs that fall from the master's table. Her, her faith in Jesus was that it would be nothing for him to heal her daughter. It would be like, like crumbs that fall from the master's table. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't take him from his master plan or his mission. It would, it would just be crumbs. Insignificant things that are just... That's all she needed. That's all she required. She said, if you'd just give me that, that's all I'd need. Her statement shows that she not only has tossed the formula and learned to simply worship the Lord, but that she's also able to understand who Jesus is, what His purpose for coming was, and she understands her part in the scheme of things. You know, Jesus could have answered this woman's request after the very first time that she came to her. Okay? After the very first time she came to him. Um, but he wanted to work something out in her. 
He wanted to develop something in her. A, a, a personal connection. And an understanding of who he was. And, an, and what he came to do. And how she fits within that plan. As we consider her response in connection really to the opposition that is mounting amongst the Jewish religious leaders, it really is that much more amazing. As we've been studying through the book of Matthew, we've seen that the Jewish leaders, right, the religious leaders whom Christ came for, came for, they are more and more churning against Christ. While this woman, who's blessed to even take just the crumbs, honors Christ with great faith. It really is an amazing testimony of faith that this woman gives. It's as if she's saying, I'm not asking for the portion that belongs to the children, just the crumbs that they don't want. Verse 28, Jesus responds to her. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus commended this woman for her great faith and answered this mother's request and her daughter was healed from demon possession. And I think it's interesting to note that the only, the only two people in the gospel accounts who were acknowledged for their great faith by Jesus was this woman and the Roman centurion. Both Gentiles. Both people who really shouldn't have had the type of faith that they had, but did. It's interesting that, in fact, between those two, the woman is the only one that Jesus says it to directly. Okay? The Roman centurion leaves and he addresses the crowd and says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel when he's talking about the centurion. But this woman's the only woman in all of the uh, gospel accounts that is given props for her faith by Jesus Christ himself. Amazing, huh? Well, what do we learn from this portion of Scripture regarding the Syrophoenician woman and her request? I pulled out four things. We've kind of noted them, but I want to just highlight them for you. Okay, First is, Jesus wants to develop our faith and to make it personal. Just like the woman in our account, Jesus wants to draw out of us a faith that is personal and intimate. Our relationship with the Lord is not based upon special wording or magic words or, or positions or, or what posture okay, that allows us to obtain favor. That's not what our relationship with the Lord is about. Okay? He wants to develop in us a faith that's personal and intimate. Number two, I believe we learned from this lesson uh, that we should be persistent in our prayers. We need to be like this woman. We need to be like Jacob. We, want, we don't want to, to give up until we get an answer from the Lord. You know, it, it, there's a balance. You know, we don't, want to be, we don't want to be repetitious in our prayers, vain repetitions in our prayers, praying for the same thing, praying over and over again. But there's nothing wrong with a heartfelt, sincere prayer that we continually lift up to the Lord. Okay? That's not vain repetition. Vain is the key there. Okay? Not the repetition part. It's the vain part. Okay? Be persistent in your search for the Lord's answers. Number three, I think we learned that we need to be worshipers of Jesus. We need to worship the Lord. This woman worshipped Jesus. It was intimate. It was personal. It was real. So should our worship be. Intimate. Personal. And real. Lastly, fourthly, as we look at this, I believe that uh, I'd like to, I think we just note that God is sufficient for our needs. This woman had great faith in the sufficiency of Christ. She knew that even a little tiny crumb from God would be more than enough for her needs. And we need to be reminded of that too. God is sufficient for all of our needs. He is able. It doesn't matter what our needs may be. Know and be comforted that He is more than able and He is more than enough. God is sufficient for our needs. 
Let's continue and look at this next portion of Scripture. Verse 29 through 31. Jesus healing a great multitude. Uh, Verse 29, it says, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus, after ministering to the one woman and healing her daughter, departs from the region of Tyre and Sidon and heads around the outskirts of the region of the Sea of Galilee and comes to a mountain. Mark's gospel actually tells us where they actually landed. It was in a region called Decapolis. Okay? Decapolis was a Roman region of ten cities on the east of the Jordan River. Jesus and his disciples have passed through this region before. If you'll recall, they healed a man by casting out demons from him and they cast those demons into a herd of swine. You guys remember that? And the swine fell off the cliff. That was in the region of Decapolis when they did that as well. Decapolis was largely filled with the Greek population. It's possible that amongst the crowd there were some Jews. But for the most part, this is Jesus once again entering into Gentile territory to minister to Here, the multitudes. Great multitudes came to Jesus, and he was there when he was there on the mountain. And the multitudes consisted of a number of people that needed healing from various disabilities and sicknesses, including but not limited to the lame, the blind, the mute, and the maimed, or your translation may say crippled. Towards the end of verse 30, we read that they laid them those that needed healing, they laid them down at Jesus' feet. And I note that because if they were laid at Jesus' feet, it would seem that the indication is that they did not have the means to come to Jesus on their own power. Okay? This means that amongst the multitude, there are also people who are perfectly well and healthy. Okay? It would seem that these loved ones of, of those in need had to carry the people and bring them to Jesus in order to lay them at His feet. As they were laid at His feet, Jesus brought healing to them, and the multitudes marveled when they saw all the different types of people healed from their infirmities. These people were struck with genuine wonder and amazement. That word marvel, it's that means wonder and amazement at what they were seeing right before their very own eyes. The mute were speaking. The maimed were made whole. The lame were walking. The blind were seeing. It was an amazing sight to see. These types of disabilities, okay, being mute or, or crippled or maimed or blind, okay, they, they were viewed as lifelong ailments. Okay? There was no means to, to be healed from blindness. That's why it was such an incredible thing when Jesus did it. It wasn't like, oh, well, you're going to take some medicine and you'll be okay. You know, blindness was, hey, you're blind. And that's your lot for the rest of your life. Or you're crippled. Or you're maimed. Hey, there was no hope for, for restoration or, or to be made whole. Some of these people may have been born with these infirmities or these disabilities. Some of them may have acquired them through accidents or sicknesses of various kinds. We don't know for sure. But we do know that these diseases that are mentioned, they were seen as lifelong sentences. Okay? Realizing the sentence behind these infirmities adds, I believe, to the wonder and the amazement of the healings of you imagine these people. You know, it's not like I, you know, for instance, my family were sick and we pray for healing, right? But... You know, maybe eventually, you know, we're going to get over it as well. And, and it's not, a, a, hopefully, a lifelong sickness. But, but these things that these people had, these were seen as lifelong ailments that they would be with them for all of their days. And so it adds to that amazement of the healings. The end result of the entire matter was that they glorified the God of Israel. And this should always be the response to any sort of working of God in the lives of men. 
that God should get the glory. When God is glorified and not man, it's sure to be a genuine move of God's spirit and power. I believe that there are too many out there today that try and take all the glory for themselves. So-called ministers of God using the name of God and healing ministries only to bring themselves glory and to bring themselves fame and sadly riches at the expense of hurting and vulnerable people. And it's a sad testimony and a strike against the Christian faith because they identify as Christians. And we need to be able to say, those people are not of the Lord. Those people are not honoring the Lord. Okay, They are seeking the glory for themselves. That is not of the Lord. We need to be careful of that type of ministry where man is glorified and not the Lord. When man gets the glory, you can nearly almost always be sure that it wasn't God doing the work. Looking at this small section of, of ministry to the multitudes, I see a couple things that we can learn. Okay? Number one is we need to bring our loved ones to Christ. Okay? The, these people that needed the Lord, they first needed someone to bring them to Christ. God wants to use you in that capacity okay? to bring others to Christ. These people, they couldn't do it on the in and of themselves. They couldn't go be laid before Jesus' feet. They needed someone to bring them to Jesus. And you know what? There's a lot of people in your guys' lives that need someone to bring them to Jesus. And maybe that someone is you. Pray and consider and say, Lord, is there... (laughs) Someone in my life that you want me to bring to you? Now, we can't bring salvation to them. We can't save them, but we can bring them to Christ. We can share the love of Christ with them. We can share the message of the hope that we have in Him. We need to bring our loved ones to Christ. Number two, I think we learn from this uh, portion of Scripture that God can mend even the most difficult of situations. Okay, These people were in a hopeless situation. Their infirmities would be lifelong sentences. But Jesus was able to restore them and bring hope back into their life. Maybe you've found yourself in a hopeless situation. We need to take it to Jesus and trust that He can handle it. And He can mend it. He can make it better. And lastly, thirdly, I think we learned from this small little portion here that the end result of all ministry should be the glorification of God. God gets the glory. Okay? It's all Him anyways, so why shouldn't He get it? Okay? Some people think, well, is God some kind of glory hog or something? No, it's Him that does it. What, what part do we really have in it? Okay? We are, we're just channels. Okay? We're just channels by which God chooses to operate. It's God that supplies all the needs, and it's God who meets those needs. He simply uses us as channels. And so should we get the glory? No. Because it's not us. It's the Lord. And so the end result of all ministry ministry should be the glorification of God, not man. Okay, let's read verse 32. It says, Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where can we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude. I went ahead too much, sorry. After healing the multitude, Jesus was moved with compassion and He wanted to feed them before sending them away. And and some of you may be thinking, didn't we just cover this portion a couple weeks ago? Remember, three weeks ago, we covered the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. Today, we're going to look at the feeding of the 4,000. Two separate events that were very similar in manner. And instead of noting the same things from when we covered the feeding of the 5,000, we'll look to glean just something new from this portion. We won't go too far in depth into it. Worth noting is the fact that Jesus didn't want to send anyone away that was hungry. 
He didn't want anyone leaving him feeling as if they were lacking something or in need of something. He wanted to be able to fill them and satisfy them with physical nourishment. Verse 33, the disciples, I already read, they came to him and said, Where can we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? I, as I read that, I thought, did they really just say that? You know? Did, come on, guys, you know? Don't you remember the 5,000 that we just fed in Bethsaida? You know, where we're going to get enough bread in the wilderness to feed this size? You know, we, we fed 5,000 in Bethsaida. This is only 4,000. Okay? Uh, it's, it's a little bit shocking to me as we think uh, of the disciples' uh, response here. Okay? There's no way that they could have forgotten that quickly about the Lord's miraculous feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus called them to the huddle and said, I have compassion on them and I want to feed them, they should have said, we know the play, boss. Okay, we got it covered. We'll, we'll scrounge up a couple of loaves and get a couple of fish and we're going to be good to go. That's how I think it should have played out. Okay, but it didn't play out that way. Okay, how is it that they say, where can we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a multitude? Uh, and it just... It makes me scratch my head a little bit. But then as I begin to scratch my head, I, I begin to think of my own life. And, and oh, be, but before we cast that condemnation upon the disciples for not remembering the Lord's previous provision, we must take a closer look at our own lives. How many times has God showed up big time for you only to have you forget about it and, and freak out the next time that you're in a difficult situation? I believe that this happens probably more often than we'd like to admit. Times come along where we just don't know what to do or how we're going to get through a certain trial or difficulty and then the Lord shows up, takes care of everything and we're just amazed at God and and how awesome He is and we're just blown away. We just praise the Lord. God, You're so good, man. God, you're, You're amazing, God. You're so awesome. And then the next time we're in a similar situation, what do we do? Okay. Do, we, do we remember God's faithfulness and, and how awesome He is and how He saw us through that? So, oh yeah, He got me through that situation before. This one be no problem. No, I think, I think if we're honest, we usually freak out again and we panic. We're like, Lord, what are you going to do? What's going to happen here, Lord? And, and God's saying, really? Kind of like what we you going to do. Really, disciples? Where are we going to get this kind of bread? Really? You know, and, and, and it's a little bit comical, a little funny to think about it, but, but in seriousness, guys, okay, it's, it's good to look back from time to time and, and to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Remembering God's past faithfulness, it gives to us a hope for His future provision. Verse 34 and 35, it says, Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. I wonder, as I read, if any of the disciples had an aha moment. You know, if they had that like, I know what he's going to do. You know, if they had that moment as he's talking about, hey, how many fish, how many loaves do you have? And and why don't you have the people sit down uh, on the ground there? And then like, oh, I know what he's going to do now. I wonder if they had that aha moment. Verse 36, it says, And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave to them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. And so they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. When we last looked at the feeding of the 5,000, we spent a good amount of time detailing things, and so we won't do that again. Okay. Uh, as a reminder, though, if you recall, some of the main points that we pulled out uh, in regards to this portion, was, they're still applicable to this account. Okay. We noted back when we studied the 5,000 that we should give what little we have to Jesus. Okay. And it's the same here. Here the disciples, they gave seven loaves and a few little fish. Something insignificant, small, but God was able to use it. Okay. We've noted also that ministry involves breaking, blessings, and providing for others. Just as Jesus took the bread and broke it and blessed it and provided it to the multitude of the 5,000, He does the same here in the 4,000. And so we see that 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 still applies. Ministry involves 
breaking and blessing and providing for others. And lastly, we noted in our study of the 5,000 that ministry is never wasted. And it's the same here. Okay, ministry is never wasted. Here they had seven large baskets fulfilled with fragments that were left over. And so we, as we look at this, we, can, we could have just went over and dissected it and did those same points. But I wanted to come up with something new and something that we learned from this teaching of the 40, uh, feeding of the 4,000. And I think we, two things that we've talked about that I think are worth noting is regard to this 4,000, uh, feeding of the 4,000. And first is that Jesus doesn't want us leaving him and hungering for something else. You know, Jesus didn't want the crowd to fall weary or too faint after spending time with Him. And I believe Jesus has the same desire every time you come to meet with Him. When you go to Him in prayer, when you go to Him in the Word, when you gather together corporately to worship Him, He wants to satisfy you and He wants to meet your needs. He doesn't want you leaving hungry and looking for substance and, and sufficiency somewhere else. Okay? Do we give them that opportunity to satisfy us? You know, do, we, do we have a hunger or an appetite for the Lord when we gather together corporately to worship and, and when we go to Him in prayer and when we go to Him in the Word of God? Do we, do we say, God, satisfy the hunger I have for you? And do we leave satisfied? I, I hope that we do. Because as I mentioned, Jesus doesn't want us leaving Him and hungering for something else. The second point I think that we pull from this is that we need to, uh, not to forget God's goodness and faithfulness. Okay, the disciples seem to forget all about how Jesus fed the 5,000 and they were clueless to how Jesus would be able to provide for the 4,000. And you know what? We can't be like that. We need to remember the faithfulness of the Lord and trust Him to see us through our various trials and difficulties. Verse 39, it concludes our chapter. It says, And He sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Um, Jesus sent the multitudes away, got into a boat, headed to a region on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Okay. It was believed to be situated in between the major cities of Tiberias and Capernaum, this place, Magdala. Okay. And uh, when we pick up our study next week, okay, we're going to see that Jesus and His disciples, upon arriving to their destination, they are met by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they have some questions for Jesus. And so I encourage you to read ahead and allow the Lord to to show you some things prior to our coming together next week so that they won't be necessarily new uh, revelation, but just confirmation of what God is speaking to your heart. Amen?